in all honesty, for, for many years, I, I guess I've been teaching adults consistently for the last seven years or so, and I have struggled on uh, whether or not to preach on topics like the one that I'm going to address this morning, um, probably to a fault. It seems like thinking about uh, the nature and character of God or preaching on that, well, there's a sense in which that's, that's easy. But preaching on the practical implications of the gospel in areas like marriage or parenting, it's a different story altogether. Uh, I feel like I make a mess of it far more often than I get it right and have a very steady realization even this morning of, of how far I have uh, to go. And so my temptation is to say consistently, well, uh, I'm going to wait a little bit till I figure this thing out, and then, uh, then I'll preach on these topics. That's a bit like saying we're going to wait until we have children, until we can afford it. You, you never get there, and if I wait to address these topics until I have it figured out, we're going to be waiting a long time. So uh, I figured the best thing I could do in the seven years between uh, pastoring consistently and preaching this morning is to have some babies. So I have done that. Uh, Actually, my wife has done that. Um, I figure if you're going to preach on parenting, uh, it would be a good idea to have some kids. And so uh, we've had four. If you uh, don't know us, uh, we we have four children, nine, seven, six, and one, and uh, for the last, uh, consist- the last nine years or so, it's been my joy to uh, try to figure these things out alongside of you. Uh, I was reminded, in, in contrast to my, my personal perception of preaching on these topics by a trusted friend, that these kind of fears uh, should only harass me if I'm up here flaunting my skills or my personal expertise as a preacher. But if I'm doing what I should be doing and just pointing people to the Bible, then it's the Bible doing the work and not me doing the work. Therefore, I can, with you, affirm that we all have room to grow rather than you sitting under the teaching of a perceived expert. So that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. Last week, we saw uh, from Jonathan's teaching that uh, kids are a, a gift of God's grace meant to be deployed as mature, multiplying worshipers of God into the world. They are not burdens, thinking they're somehow going to crush our otherwise self-sufficient lives. And they're not meant to be worshipped. They make really bad gods. But somewhere in the middle, between burdens and idols, we see that kids are a prime gift of God's grace. And with, with all stories, as we come to the Bible, we would expect that the things that are introduced early are going to be central concepts to the overall story. So when we come to God's redemptive narrative spelled out in the Scriptures, we see that all the way back at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, certain things are introduced. Things like marriage, things like parenting, and things like work. So these, whatever we do with these, we would say, God held these in very high regard, introduced them at the beginning of the story, and they are woven throughout the scriptures. And as soon as sin enters the world, we have an attack on families. Adam and Eve usurping one another's roles, Cain killing Abel. And the assault continues in our culture as families are typically undervalued, and we tend to consistently make a mess of that which God exalted. Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan pastor, said this in regards to our families. 
we must have a special eye upon our families to see that they are well-ordered and the duties of each relation performed. The life of religion and the welfare and the glory of both the church and the state very much depend on family government and duty. If we suffer a neglect of this, we shall undo all. I, I beseech you, therefore, if you desire the reformation and welfare of your people, do all you can to promote family religion. So perhaps, uh, maybe more importantly uh, than Trump or Hillary, our culture rises and falls on what we do with these God-ordained institutions of the family. And perhaps this is a, a primary place, if we long to see the transformation of our culture, that we would give special attention here. We're going to do that in the life of our church even this week. We kick off tonight our, our vacation Bible school here at the church. Amber and her team have gone above and beyond uh, to care for and to make uh, clear the gospel message through what we'll do here beginning this evening. I encourage you to, uh, to come. If you haven't signed up already, we have about 100 folks signed up, 100 children signed up, which is more pre-registered than we had in attendance last year. Uh, about 20 or 25 of those we've never met before. So God is giving us grace and favor with children that will be here. So if you're not personally involved, I encourage you to pray that God would use this time uh, significantly in the life of our children. And I encourage you to give uh, consistent attention to the scriptures this morning as we tackle uh, this topic. And I, I know at the outset that the implications of what we're going to cover this morning applies to, to every person in the room, whether or not you're currently a parent or not. Uh, those of you who aren't parents but one day will, these truths need to seep into your bones. We see at the outset of the scriptures that the God-given command for his people is that they would be fruitful and multiply. So, unless you are gifted with singleness or in God's mysterious providence unable to have children, kids are normative for God's people. In fact, they are commanded. Okay? In fact, they are commanded. This is the God-given, God-ordained means of multiplying worshipers of King Jesus. Those of you who no longer have children at home, you have a great means of continual investment, either in your grandchildren or the youth or the college students that fill this church on a regular basis. Those of you who are laboring to be obedient to Christ in the meantime through adoption, orphan care, through serving in your discipleship ministries here in the local church, the implications of what we'll look at this morning uh, have far-reaching effect. Let's consider uh, the proverb that we'll, uh, we'll give our attentiveness to this morning from Proverbs chapter 22. For many of you, uh, this will be familiar, even if you're uh, not raised in the church. Uh, this has become uh, a bit of a cultural mantra. Uh, the proverb writer says... Train up, this is Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, this, on the surface, is a really challenging sentence. Because all sorts of but whatabouts flood our mind right at the outset. But what about parents who seem to do it right and their kid goes off the deep end? 
Or what percentage of training them do I have to do in order to achieve this outcome? Or when is when he's old, right? Or what about the kid who turns out all right even though his parents were a total train wreck? What do we do with that? Well, it's important for us at the outset to consider what Proverbs are. What, what, are, they, what are they saying? These are, this is uh, found in a collection of our scriptures, biblical books that are known as the wisdom literature. They give us an authoritative glimpse into the mind of God, demonstrating his insight into how he designed humans to live. But they are not prophecies or promises. Meaning this proverb is not intended to say if you train up any child in the way that child should go, in every case that child will not depart from it. That is not what this proverb is doing. Consider other proverbs like Proverbs 14.20. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Well, clearly that's not true in 100% of the cases. I know some rich dudes that are hated, right? Okay. Or Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Again, we can't apply that in 100% of the cases. I know people who have sought out many counselors only to have their plans fail. This is not what the Proverbs are intended to do. But it is what other places in Scripture are intended to do. Contrast this with, uh, with Paul's famous statement that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is a promise. We can apply this in 100% of the cases to whatever situation you, you're in. All caps, nothing can separate you. Okay? This uh, protects, this nuance, protects this verse at the outset from being a sledgehammer of guilt or a means of comparison. I mean, look at your kid. You must have really blown it because they turned out to be a buffoon, right? That is not what this passage is intending to do. However, however, this need not make us dismissive of the truth of this proverb. We can hedge our bets so much that we minimize what this proverb is actually driving at. The fact that it is not always the case does not mean that it is not typically the case. This is the God's general path of wisdom. And God's wisdom teaches, and this is kind of summary statement for this morning, that Christian parents who work to train their kids in the way they should go can trust that in God's sovereignty, he will bring to fruition faith and transformation in their children. Okay, say that one more time. God's wisdom teaches that Christian parents who work to train their kids in the way they should go can trust that God in his sovereignty will bring to fruition faith and transformation in their children. To run after that end, let's break this sentence up into phrases. Let's consider the four primary phrases that make up uh, this proverbial wisdom. The first being the central verb of the text, what, what are we doing? And that is that we are training up. So if you're taking notes, I just uh, encourage you, like, big idea number one is that you're, you're training up. 
Now, in other places, when we're talking about parents or parenting in general, the language is that of teaching, that we would teach our children God's law and God's ways. But here, the proverb writer chooses a more holistic word, the word train. And as we consider this language of training, there are several implications that follow naturally from that. Implication number one, whatever we're doing in the raising of our children involves more than just their mind, but it also involves their heart and their actions. Training is distinguished from teaching. Certainly it is an aspect of training that we are teaching, but what we are driving at isn't mere mind-shaping, but also heart and actions. Secondly, and quite convictingly, training implies that this work will happen as much through modeling as it will through teaching. Training implies that whatever parents are doing, they are not merely parroting truths, but they're embodying those truths themselves. Consider these two quotes. Cultivate, I repeat, your own personal religion to a higher degree of imminent and consistent piety. Without this, you'll neither have the disposition nor the power to do much in forming the pious character of your children. Many of you must be sensible that you are in too lukewarm a state and too inconsistent as professors of godliness even to make the attempt to bring your children under the influence of true religion, much less to expect success. This is an inescapable law of human behavior, and try as we might, we can't alter it. Our children will follow our modeling more than they will follow the words that come out of our mouths. Michael Spencer gives us a picture of what this looks like in the future when he says this. When you have small children, you can simply never realize what it's going to be like one day to face them as adults. With the realization that you have shaped them into the persons that they will be for all their lives. If we realized what it really means to create, nurture, and shape another person in the deepest of human ways, we'd be frozen in fear. So much of what they are comes from us in ways that are unintended, unknown, or unplanned. Your children are truly a legacy of the kind of person you really are, how you lived, and how you've loved, and what you considered to be most important. This training is going to happen through modeling as much as it, te- as, as it is teaching. And thirdly, training implies that what we're doing as parents is not an event, but it's a pattern of life. Often when I hear uh, parents, or even when I speak of, uh, of, of family worship and leadership, it's as if uh, I consider family devotions to be some, some kind of uh, magic bullet, right? Well, if we just do those three minutes of family devotions then I've trained my kids in the way of the Lord. But family devotions are not magic. This is a pattern of life that we do with our children. Deuteronomy 6 gives us some consideration of this, that we would write the words of the law everywhere. That whether we sit in our house or walk by the way, lie down, rise, we're going to bind them on our hands, they'll be frontlets before our eyes, we'll write them on the doorpost of our house and on our gates. So, 
your three-minute family devotion in the morning will not trump 23 23 hours and 57 minutes where the gospel does not saturate your home. Simply won't happen. So we're training up, and then the second phrase, um, a child. Again, I think this is important. We're training up a child. Here, the language is not children broadly, but a child. There is attentiveness to the singular child at hand. The unique needs, personality, and life stage of the child in question. If you've ever been a parent, you realize this off the top. You don't parent every child in the same way. Their personalities, behavior, all of that shapes the way we apply the gospel to their specific needs and to their specific life stages. These various life stages will necessitate different forms of training at different times. But there's a normative pattern that we're running after that we'll consider in a minute in the way they should go. But we're going to do this with, with each of our children specific to them. For me, the, the picture uh, of raising children looks much like uh, beginning at an early stage in infancy with my children right behind me. That I am leading the way and I am modeling for them every aspect of life, from eating food to brushing their teeth to doing everything. My goal as a parent is to move my child from right behind me to hand in hand, to in front where I am behind them, supporting them, affirming them, and encouraging them as they enter adulthood. My kids are moving around me, as it were. Now this process of going from front to back, to hand in hand, to back to front, requires a whole lot of work. And these years of transitioning, particularly the front to back to hand in hand process, are slow and painstaking. In these years, I am transitioning authority from me to God. And it is a bit like trying to grab a bar of soap in the shower. If I squeeze it too hard, that sucker's going to pop out of my hands and poke me in the eye. If I don't squeeze it hard enough, it's going to fall on my toes. There is a delicate balance as a parent in these years of transition of moving my child from modeling right in front to hand in hand to support from behind. But my goal, this is my parenting goal, is to move my children from dependence on me to dependence on God. Simply put, this is what we all should be after. That I am working to move my child from dependence on me to dependence on God. That equals success as a parent. So then what does dependence on God look like? Well, the third phrase, I think, gives us some consideration of that. In the way that he should go. Read he, obviously, very broadly there, in the way that that child, he or she, should go. If you get on this afternoon and you do a Google search of this phrase, you're going to see a host of bad interpretations on the front screen of Google. Many are going to encourage you that the language of the text here is that we're to train the child in their way. 
that we would encourage whatever unique personalities and proclivities that child has, that we would encourage them to, to find their own way through life. This is a bit like those who will interpret Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself as a command to love myself. They say, if I don't learn to love myself, then I'll never be able to love my neighbor. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't need any help loving myself. I've got that one down. And in the same way, my children don't need any help following their way. To lead them in the way that fits them sets them up for disaster. They don't need my help with that. What they need help with is leading them in the way they should go. In the God-given, God-ordained way that life would function. How do we move them in that way? And We've got to be careful here because our default is going to be reactive. We're going to do one of two things. We're either going to train our kids in the manner in which we were raised, or we're going to train them in the exact opposite of the manner in which we're raised. This is going to be your default starting position. You're either going to say, my family and my home, my upbringing was wonderful, something that I want to embrace, and therefore I want to reproduce it in the life of my children, or we're going to say, it was terrible, and I want to parent my kids in the way that I wish my parents had parented me. Either perspective leads to lopsided parenting. Better, let's work, and this is going to be work, to train them in God's way. To train them in the way that God has ordained, the one uniformed way that God has ordained for life to function and the way they should go. And this is the responsibility of parents. Families have been given, parents have been given the delegated authority to train their children in the ways of God. How about that for a task before us? We have been delegated the authority to train our children in the ways of God. This is the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 6, speaking of children honoring their father and mother. And then he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We're going to consider those. This morning we're talking more about the instruction of the Lord. Next week, Ted's going to lead us in a discussion of discipline. How do we raise our kids in the discipline of the Lord? But in this delegated authority to train our children in the ways of God, you have way more influence as a parent than you think. Consider this quote from the most unlikely of sources, the Coors Brewing Company. Nearly three out of four parents believe their children's friends and classmates have the most influence on their lives. Yet the contrary to what parents think, kids say mom and dad have the biggest impact on their choices. Now we've got to be careful here. Because again, our default in training them in the way that they will go is going to bend towards mere behavior shaping. It's going to be, here's right and here's wrong. And this is where we're prone to begin, right? We, we want our kids to be mature, to be compliant, to be helpful, to be kind. The problem is, there's a massive obstacle between my children and your children and the way they should go. What's that massive obstacle? Their sin nature. They simply can't, 
through here's right and here's wrong walk in the way they should go for the very same reason you can't. Because you, they have a depraved heart bent on rebellion from God. So, to train a child to, towards outward conformity to a set of behaviors without begging God for a corresponding inner change wrought by His Spirit sets you up to raise a hypocrite who will in time spur your wisdom and pursue their own ways. This doesn't mean we don't drive after right behavior, but it does mean that must be matched by intentional, consistent begging of God to do what only He can do, which is change the heart of your child. This is why Psalm 127 should be plastered on every parent's wall. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The way that they should go is impossible apart from the grace of God. This new birth is the main thing that gets them towards the way they should go. And this is what separates us as Christians from being people who train our kids in good manners and those who train our kids in the way that they should go. Totally different things. So a better movement than simply, here's the way you should go, now go do it, which is going to set them up for shame, guilt, and failure in the very same way it sets you up for shame, guilt, and failure, is to slow down and consider... uh, perhaps introduce a a fourfold movement for you this morning. A fourfold movement that's perhaps better in getting them towards the way they should go than simply, here's what you should do, now go and do it. First, an introduction of God's law. God as the objective source of all that is true and there being clearly defined ways of obeying God and ways of disobeying God. This is why, as a parent, you can't be half-hearted in your rules, particularly with young children. If we teach them that there is a line, but if they cross that line, then that line is movable in order to get them inside the line, we've done them a grave disservice. We've passively trained them that the moral law of God is movable, pliable to their own whims, and in time, this is going to crush them. We teach that God has clear moral objectives that he sets for his people. There's a clear in and there's a clear out. Secondly, we teach them their sin. Simply put, they can't and you can't do that which God requires. So therefore, Sin has consequences. Your disobedience, your stepping outside those clearly defined lines, demonstrates the sin that's in your heart. Then, thirdly, Jesus' work. God loved you. He sent Jesus to pay the price for your sin. And he gives you a gift as an act of his grace. And then, fourthly, this is why we want to obey as an act of love towards God. Let's recount those four movements. God's law, your sin, Jesus' work, lifelong worship. This painstaking, slow process is the means by which we train our children to understand their sinfulness, their need for Christ, 
and the motive that will drive them to be lifelong obedient worshipers of King Jesus. So let's apply this. Uh, it never happens to you, but let's me. We say to our kids, wait here, mommy will be right back. Okay? It's pretty clear, right? Wait here, mommy's going over there, and mommy will be right back. Now the kid invariably runs off following whatever glittery, shiny thing they see off in the distance, whatever their friends are doing. We got a couple options here. Silly kid. What are you doing making mommy and daddy look for you? We were so scared. Boy, kids sure are a mess, aren't they? Next time, hey, just be sure you don't run into traffic, okay? Let's move the line. Or, the exact, follow me. Let's go in the back room and I'll show you what it means to stay there next time. Or, the painstaking, slow, fourfold process that is much harder than here's right and here's wrong. It's tiresome, it's burdensome, but it's the same process you've got to work through as parents. We could say, I gave you clear instructions to stay here. Did you understand what mommy and daddy said? Yes. You stepped out from the authority of your parents, and in turn, the authority of God. You sinned. Your movement from here out there wasn't silly kid. It was disobedience, and it reflects a sinful heart. And that is why you need Jesus. Because it's really hard to stay here, little Johnny, isn't it? Your heart wants to run out there, doesn't it? It's the very same thing that happens to daddy's heart as well. When I see God's law and I understand it clearly, everything inside of me wants to go do this. And that's why daddy needs Jesus and it's why you need Jesus. You have an offer of a gift of the forgiveness of your sins and the means by which you can be a lifelong worshiper of God that you can obey. This, again, this slow process applied specifically in the language that your kids can understand, should be, as a Christian parent, what you hear yourself saying ad nauseum. If you are sick of hearing yourself say it, your, your kids are probably just hearing you say it. Consistently. And this is going to demonstrate for you the motives that drive your parenting in the first place. If your motive is, I want my child to be good, to not embarrass me, and to avoid bad consequences, then the here's right, here's wrong, don't do it, I'm going to take you in the back room and teach you works. But if your motive is worshipful obedience of King Jesus, then you've got to slow down and do this hard work. I've got to ask myself the question, do I want my children to know God, to rest in the person and work of Christ, and to have their many, many sins washed by the blood of Jesus and eternally glorify him? Or do I want my children to be good, to scrupulously avoid sins and follow biblical injunctions, and therefore to avoid bad consequences in life? Those drive totally different versions of parenting. Then lastly, last phrase, 
that he will not depart from it. When he's old, he will not depart from it. This one's a hard one to pin down because at times it's going to look like progressive incremental change and transformation. Other times, painfully so, it's going to look like a prodigal return, right? And we don't really know which it's going to be. We don't know which version of when they're old, they're not going to depart from it. God's going to work in this child's life. But this carrot of hope reminds me that it really is worth all the effort that I'm pouring into this act of parenting. This, disciplining my child that when I say stay here, I mean stay here, as hard as it is to believe, is a God-given act of worship. I've got to do it over and over and over again. This is my allotted work as a parent. And it, it is and can be joyous, life-giving work if seen under the future hope that my children might be lifelong worshipers of King Jesus. Then it's worth the effort, right? Now, how do we respond to this? Um, let, let me... Three ways not to respond. The, fir- the first way not to respond is to ask yourself, well, how do I compare with other parents in the room that are trying to do this? The temptation for us all is to become puffed up with pride at how well we think we are doing or not doing. You know that kind of experience you have when the kid next to you has a meltdown in the grocery store line? And in your heart you say, praise God, my kid didn't do that, right? Forgetting the fact that yesterday your kid was the very one doing that thing. In a world that's constantly clamoring for pseudo-saviors, it is easy to find our supreme joy in how well we're doing as a parent. Or at least the perception of how well we think we're doing what our kids watch or don't watch, what they eat or don't eat, what they wear or don't wear, where they learn or where they don't learn, what they know, what they say, what they do. These can be a means of exalting ourselves before others, and then, inversely, and this is where it gets really hard, they can crush you when your kids let you down. Kids make really bad saviors. So we don't want to ask, how do we compare? Secondly, the thing I don't want you to ask walking out of this it is, have you done enough? Have, have I trained enough? Have I somehow crossed that threshold such that when my kids are old, they'll, they'll return to the ways of God? This is a crushing burden. Take, take buying a pair of shoes. You've got two options. You can buy the $55 pair or the $40 pair. You say in your head, well, I'm going to buy the $40 pair in order to conserve money and give more money away. But then there's that worn-out pair of shoes in your closet. Of course, I could just wear those for a few more years. I mean, after all, they don't smell all that bad, right? But then, I mean, who needs shoes anyway? I'll just go shoeless. 
This mental gamesmanship can crush you under a weight you are not meant to bear. You are not your child's savior. And hear hear this clearly. The nature of your heart, intent on seeking to honor God and point them consistently in the way they should go, is the mustard seed that God can and does use to bring about fruit. And you can rest in that. The weight of have I done enough will crush us. The freedom that comes from entrusting my child to God to do what I cannot do is quite free. And then lastly, how not to respond. Is to ask yourself the question, well, <laughs> I've already blown it too much, right? What if, I, what if I've blown it? Uh, it's easy for us. Um, in reading this text, to feel crushed under guilt and shame, thinking I've somehow already crossed the threshold where I haven't trained my kids in the way of the Lord. I want to remind you this morning that the God who is powerful enough to break the shackles of sin in your life is also big enough to reverse the implications of your poor parenting. Now, this need not mean that you run after poor parenting as the goal. But it does serve as an encouragement to us that God is big enough to save you, to transform your heart, and can do the same. He can restore the years that the locusts have eaten in your lack of intentionality to this work. At times, God-given parenting and family is going to serve as a beautiful picture of the gospel. At other times, it's going to serve as a photo negative of the gospel. Some of you, this has been true for you. For some, the God-given image of God as, as Father conjures up beautiful notions of a Father who loved you, served you, who cared for you. For others of you, that imagery is a photo negative. God as Father is altogether different than the Father that you knew. And you can see God as fulfilling all those things you wish earthly Father had done and did not do. The same may be true for your children. At times, your parenting will serve as a picture of the gospel, and this should be our drive. At other times, it's going to serve as a photo negative of the gospel. We can pray that as as we think back on our lives of all the times we've blown it, that God would birth in my child's heart the realization that he's a far better parent than I'll ever be. And it's better for my child to understand that mommy and daddy have to work through that same process than it is to give them the false hope that I'm the Savior that only God can be. This is why the family is such a beautiful image of what Jesus did for us in the gospel, what the cross accomplishes on our behalf. The language throughout the scriptures is of people who are not a part of God's family, that God grafts into his family and loves, adopts them as his son or daughter. This morning, some servers are going to come. You you can go ahead and come forward, and they're going to pass, distribute to you, the bread and the juice. It's a good thing for me to take communion on a day when I'm reminded of my sinfulness. 
when I can consider the motive of worshipful obedience and how far I have to go. As these servers go ahead and distribute the elements of the meal, I want to invite you to some space and time um, to reflect. And in this reflection, there, there are a couple of layers of this. The first layer of your reflection is the beautiful truth that this symbolizes, that you are a part of God's family. That you have a God who loved you and adopted you into his family. This is why this meal is only for believers. That those of us who are a part of God's family would receive this as an act of remembrance and an act of worship. We're also reminded as the juice and the bread passes by our children, as they perhaps don't take of the elements of this supper, that our kids, more than good manners, they need Jesus. And so as we reflect and think on the beauty of the gospel, I I want to encourage you to beg God to do by his spirit what you can't do through good parenting, to change the hearts of your children. This may mean praying over them, praying with them, praying for them. I want you to use this space to allow God to press in your heart the need for this as a consistent virtue. And if you're here and you don't have children, that you would use this time to reflect perhaps on the children that you will one day have or on the means by which you can embrace this training and instruction in your discipleship and your care for others in the meantime. Perhaps that is some of you that have selfishly built a life apart from children that you would be reminded that God gives you a wonderful opportunity to model the gospel. Perhaps you need to consider adoption, orphan care, pursuing the least of these in this world. That you would take opportunity to invest in the discipleship of those here in this church. That you would do it as a means of honoring the Lord.